Hi, Hi everyone. everyone. I'm John. And I'm Georgia. And we're here inside your ears to talk about the mac and cheese of movies. This, this is, is Comfort, Comfort Films. Films. Hi everyone and welcome to Comfort Films podcast episode 45. Today we're going to be discussing Terminator 2, Judgment Day. From 1991. This came out on July 3rd. Everyone was getting ready for their fireworks, brother. (laughs) I like how Hulk Hogan just came in to do some additional intro work for us there. Thank you, Hulk. You got it, brother. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I have no idea where that came from. Yeah, It's good. It's good. We like it. It's got the same energy here. You know. Yeah, like a like a snap into a Slim Jim. Yeah, or if, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger's pal, Jesse Ventura, could come <laughs> and do some helpful, you know, work for us, that would be great. I think that would be very nice. How about how they both became governors? Oh my gosh. I don't know. We're not doing Predator, so I should pop out of this and move Right. On. Predator someday. 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 Yeah. I love it. I love Predator. Um, but yeah. Today we're doing Terminator 2, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, we we decided to actually go straight to the sequel, rather than starting with the 1984 Terminator, even though we love both movies, I would say equally. Yeah, I'd like the 1984 one, because it's punk rock, we've got Bill Paxton in at the beginning, yeah. always right. Of course. You know, we get introduced to this metal exoskeleton, which is terrifying, it's awesome. Can you believe that came from like a James Cameron like dream nightmare? <laughs> That's so crazy to me. It's pretty awesome though. Like I wish I would have interesting nightmares or dreams. My nightmares are are just just really foolish nightmares. Like, <laughs> you know, like last night somehow I ended up in Korea without a passport. And then Chevy Chase was my guide, and then Tim Kazarinski came to our aid. I, I, mean, I don't... That's insane to me. Yeah. But it would not make a good movie. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, well, at least you have a cast already. I mean, yeah, I will give you that, but it took a while for Chevy <laughs> Chase to show up. There was, like, a lot of, like, me not knowing what to do without money and, like, and trying to get food. Yeah, and a passport. And just being, like, a dumbass who, like, couldn't speak the language. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. It was a very weird dream. So, yeah, you're in peril, but it's not an entertaining sci-fi action peril. No, it's more of, like, a like A, a dirt- bureaucratic, like, paperwork nightmare peril. <laughs> we were trying to think, you know, what's our next theme going to be? We love, we love a theme here at Comfort Films HQ. And one of the things that we thought about was when we love a sequel. Um, And there are some films that we're not necessarily saying that the sequel is better than the original. But we are saying that the sequel is so good that you can just go and just watch the sequel. Like you don't have to feel like you want to watch the series from the beginning. You can just jump in and rewatch the sequel because it's so good and terminator 2 is definitely definitely high on that list yeah terminator 2 is something we grew up with and i have such great memories of actually being able to see that you know in the theaters i mean that ups it i mean i'm jumping ahead a little because we're talking about sequels in general but yes sequels that stand out are something that I am really impressed by because there have been many times in my life when I adored that first film, could not wait for that second film to come out. You have your ticket, you get in the theater, you have the popcorn and the soda, you are ready to rock, right? Yeah, And then you're like, oh boy. Yeah. 
You but know? that was not the case with us at all. No. I mean, yeah. we wouldn't talk about it. Otherwise. Now, had you seen the original Terminator film when you saw T2 in the theater? I had seen it, yes. I okay. mean, we had like this VHS exchange. I think I might have mentioned it. My dad had a friend at work. Mm-hmm. And this guy, Mr. Kane, would... <laughs> Sounds like like some uh, CIA shadow operative, <laughs> Mr. Kane would uh, you know loan us the videotapes uh, that <laughs> had film. Yeah, <laughs> we got the microfilm from Mr. Kane, <laughs> and uh, it was fantastic. No, but his buddy Dick Kane would loan us movies, and one of these movies was Terminator, and it was just such a good ride you know i remember watching it with my dad you know for a while i mean i even wrote about this on on the blog posts my mother really wasn't down with me seeing r-rated movies but then there kind of seemed to be a loophole with action films and my dad he just opened the gates early you know what (laughs) i mean he was just like (laughs) you know i taped this movie for you last night on the vcr like you asked me to you know, because we would have like a free HBO preview, mm-hmm. but just don't tell your mother, <laughs> you know. Um, so we had that. So, yeah, we watched Terminator, loved it. Great action, you know, and I love science fiction. We had like a story that I had never even heard of or could even come close to imagining. Yeah, it's so creative. I mean, mm-hmm. the whole premise of the films is so creative because... You know, there's this time travel element, which, you know, is terrifying to me, as we discussed during Back to the Future. Yeah. That I have an irrational phobia about time travel. And, you know, partially it could come from this movie as well. I didn't really think about it, but the whole thing with Terminator, where John sends Kyle back... And Kyle actually ends up being his dad was kind of like mind blowing. Yeah, it sends me into a little bit of a, a a freaked out spiral or something. But you know, it's it's brilliant and and amazing and nothing I had ever seen before. And then you have like that it's the cyborg robot, and it's Arnold Schwarzenegger who we all know. You know, is this great action star. And at the time, this was like a, a major thing for him. And he was playing a bad guy in the original Terminator. So it was pretty amazing. And then we go to Terminator 2. They flip the script on us. Give us good guy Arnold Terminator. And everything about this sequel is so referential to the first movie. While at the same time putting a new spin on it it's just brilliant that's what i love about it and we did see that james cameron himself even says that you don't have to have seen terminator 1984 to enjoy terminator 2 yeah i mean it's the way the movies interlock though when you have both pieces you know it's just like a puzzle piece that just fits perfectly and you understand the entire picture and there are so many similarities between the two films the first thing that i'll say of course is the ending the ending of both films of terminator and terminator 2 judgment day the theatrical version that is are the shots of the road and you know it's like thinking about the future in the first film you have sarah connor driving away and that photograph that polaroid has just been taken of her she's on the jeep and she kind of goes down the road 
and we have like a quick monologue moment, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. um, even if we don't, we're on the road. Second film, we have this voiceover bit, you know, and where are we? We're on the road at night. So it, it bookends it, you know, and it, it continues the story. And what I love about the ending is it gives you the idea that there could be more. Yeah. And you but want it, it. Yeah, it doesn't like force it, mm -hmm. but it's like a suggestion. And I really like that too. I think it's super cool that it's there. And the whole idea is that you know the that there is no fate but what we make and and that the you know something that seemed written in stone isn't because it was able to be changed and i love that idea that's hope that's like what we get off on here at cfhq right is hopeful stuff and that's what what's happening in terminator 2 um, there's a sense of hope that you know they've been able to stave off this apocalyptic event for at least a little while longer. They don't know what's going to happen. And the future that they thought was laid out like a roadmap is now more like an open book. Well, and I mean, it's called Terminator, right? <laughs> it's Terminator and Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Terminator 2 Judgment Day sounds dire. Yeah, it sounds like you're in trouble. And I mean, it does have that amazing sequence Oof. of like the nuclear weapon like hitting LA ah. and detonating and it's so real. Yeah, when I saw that I I freaked because growing up on television, you know, these were things that always came on after I went to bed. There were all of these movies about what if there was a nuclear war. Yeah, and documentary shows too. Like you would always see that it was kind of some black cloud that was always hanging over our heads. Yeah. Like in the 80s when we were children, you know. And I feel like we had kind of a nice maybe 25-year hiatus on worrying about that. And now we're kind of back into it at this point, which sucks. Sucks bad. I didn't yeah. miss that. <laughs> that like abject back of your head at all times panic about like you know apocalyptic nuclear war but i think for sure the scene in here in this movie that shows that is done so well that it is really scary i mean it kind of looks like footage from like the nuclear testing videos and stuff like that to me no i fully agree with you and what is more terrifying than seeing a playground of these young children, you know, with their parents having this wonderful time, mm -hmm. you know, then... that is, I, I mean, that is so harsh, you know, we're not parents, but I can kind of really understand how horrible that is. The reason I say kind of is because, it, you know, if I was a parent, you were a parent, we were both parents. I think it would take on even more meaning, you know, because playing with your kid, that, that's like a very special moment. You know, I never forget playing catch with my dad, all these great times at the playground, playing basketball, playing golf, just having fun. Those are the best moments of your life. Those are the memories you never forget. And when you're on this emotional high of your entire life, and then literally literally it's incinerated and blown away in an instant yeah 
and Ooh. out of a blue sky, right? I mean, it's like this beautiful day, mm-hmm. and it's like this idyllic scene, and then suddenly, you know, this mushroom cloud, and, you know, buildings exploding, all these things. And I had read, actually, that Stan Winston's team that, like, did the scene um, said that, you know, they actually had people who worked for the government tell them that it was the most realistic um, kind of nuclear war kind of footage that anybody had ever made that they had seen. And they also, the people who did the scene also said that they have never gotten really more feedback about a scene that they did than they've gotten on this. And I can really see why. Because it's so well done that it is terrifying. Like, they use miniatures and all these different things, but it looks really realistic. It's so effective. It's so affecting the way the buildings just blow away. Yeah. You know, I oh, man. Well, I mean, and this also calls to mind another thing, which is that Terminator 2, one of the other main differences between this and the 1984 original Terminator film, is that T2 has tons of cash laying around. <laughs> um, and they definitely used it to great effect um, with the visual effects um, that were used in this film. Because, I don't know about you, but I'm guessing, like, me and most everyone else, what really set you off with wanting to see this movie was the T-1000. The T-1000? I've never seen a liquid villain. Yeah. He looks like an evil Silver Surfer. And I'm a huge Silver Surfer fan. So when I saw that effect, I was really impressed. And I was like, whoa, okay. So I'm used to thinking about my favorite hero or one of my favorite comic book heroes. I have a ton. Yeah. Long list. You know, it's like, but we have this liquid creature. And and Robert Patrick, terrifying in the film. He is expressionless, emotionless. He looks like an evil bird slash vampire. He looks around in such a predatory way at everything. Yeah. He never lets you feel comfortable. And and it's just like you see this guy and in a split second of seeing him you're like, uh-uh, uh-uh. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Like as the metal man, it's amazing to just see that and to imagine it. Mm-hmm. And then at the same time when he like fully transforms and he's Robert Patrick He's even scarier. Like, Robert Patrick thought a lot about this role. And he did an amazing job playing this kind of robot man. (laughs) You know, he modeled his head movement on the bald eagle. Perfect. Yes. So it is like a predatory bird, you know. And uh, he perfected the ability to run while breathing through his nose. So that in these scenes where he's just, like, hauling ass running, mm-hmm. it looks like he's exerting no effort because he was able to, to do it that way. And he shouldn't have to have an effort because this is a cyborg. You know, this is this dude's just made out of this poly alloy or whatever they call it. And, it, you know, he can, he can transform into anything. He can transform into objects. Um, and it's just, it's really scary. And also just effects wise, never anything we had really seen before. No, we've never seen anything where we had this type of character be such a large part of the film. 
because this was the marriage of like, you know, puppets, practical effects and CGI. This was the first time that we had ever seen a character that was this major in a film. You know, it, it tracks back to the abyss. Well, actually, it goes back even further, because originally, when James Cameron was thinking about the first Terminator film, he wanted to have this liquid metal villain. And he thought about stop motion, and he looked at the options that were available to him. He actually has even, like, some little casts, it looks like, he worked on. Oh, wow. Yeah, they, they showed it, um, I think, like, maybe on one of the behind-the-scenes or the, the special features, they showed it. And um, it, it couldn't be done. It just wasn't feasible. And then, when he did the movie The Abyss, okay, it, it's Industrial Light and Magic, who is incredible. Yeah. I mean, we had talked about them before mm -hmm. uh, within the context of Willow. Yes. Where they kind of started that morphing technology where they showed, like, a morph between, like, this thing, this, this person that would turn into different animals and then into a person. And that was really the first time that had been done. And they kind of created the technique from scratch, and then everybody wanted to use it. It's, well, because it was just so cool. I mean, we saw it in Willow, and it was something that was cool, but it didn't really seem to catch on, it seemed. Well, and it was limited just to that one scene, really, because right. it was expensive and time-consuming to do. So, you know, they weren't able to do tons of it. Um, but, yeah, it... It was something that did capture people's imagination, though. And, of course, they wanted to move forward with the technology. Yeah. So it was like 1988 Willow, 1989 James Cameron does The Abyss, and ILM makes this pseudopod, which looks very similar to when the T-1000 pours himself into the helicopter. Mm -hmm. It's just like this long, kind of shiny snake tube, you know, that, that had a, a face on it which was incredible. And it was a very small sequence in the film. And James Cameron said if they couldn't get it to work, they could cut it. It would be fine. But it did work. And it was it was incredible. It, it's a, a sequence that if you only see that and not the rest of the movie, I kind of feel like you're okay. Because, <laughs> I, I mean, I love everybody that's in it. But it's just like that piece was so new yeah. you know that was nothing nothing i had ever dreamed of you know you just see this long tube shiny see-through snake with a face it's just like animated water yes really yeah and then a door shuts on it and then it turns into water yeah and, and it's like the, the people that worked on this said how much effort they put into it that they actually had to paint some of the edges and, and so it's like, wow. That blows my mind with how much effort has to be put in to, like, what in this movie, in that minute, in the abyss is maybe, I don't know, 10 or 15 seconds, maybe? Maybe. I, I don't know that what the time is, but I always remember seeing it because it was the thing that, like, I couldn't stop thinking about. I, I loved it. I loved how it looked. And you had, you know, The Abyss, which is a great movie, amazing actors. You're really impressed. And then, again, they bring in this new element. Yeah. And, you know, and then it was something that they carried over, you know, because it was like, okay, you know, James Cameron said, we have proof of concept, you know. So it's like they took the advancements from Willow. 
they took the advancements from the abyss and then they put all of this together in Terminator 2. Um, I, I mean, you know, when they talked about uh, Stan Winston's team, okay, so it was actually practical effects when you see the T-1000 getting shot and you see like those silver flowers kind of pop up on his chest. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, you can actually see video of this online, which is incredible, you know, because they have just like this RC controller and the guy is wearing a vest. He's wearing like a police uniform, just like Robert Patrick. And it's just these, these like flowers, these silver flowers pop up on him. And the way that they came up with a design for this is going to blow your mind. So, Stan Winston and his team shot pellets into the mud. Okay. It's really smart. Right? It's just like, wow. And then they studied, you know, the pattern, you know, and they just, they made some appliances. They, they made it happen. And, and then it's just like they managed to find a way to stuff it, I'm guessing, into like some kind of pods. You know, makes you think almost like a parachute, right? Mm-hmm. Or almost like, you know, when you're a kid and you have one of those wands where you push up and the flower comes out. Yes. You know, that's that's what it reminds me of. Um, yeah. I, I mean, who would ever heard of such a thing? I mean, it was everything. And Stan Winston is incredible. You know, you could see some of the work uh, in there would remind you of another amazing movie, The Thing. Yes, you pointed that out this time, and I had never made that connection. But it's like close to the end, right when the T-1000 is getting kind of tipped into that vat of like, you know, melted metal or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, He's been shot, and it kind of blows up. Well, his, his kind of middle kind of blows up. And his head is kind of hanging over, and it does look like the thing when the thing is seen with that dog that is transformed. So it's it's creepy, and it really calls back to that, and it has like a real horror movie element right in that moment. Sure does. I mean, it reminds me also that the scene with Sarah Connor and the shotgun, where she is taking out the T-1000 herself... She could have done it. She just needed one more shotgun shell. And it's just like, every time I watch it, I'm like, ah! Like, I just want to reach through the screen and give her the ammo, you know? And just like, because she had him. (laughs) She had him. She had him! And and then it was like we had to to cut to Arnie coming up over the gear, and then he shoots, I guess it's a grenade launcher? I think it's like a grenade gun type of thing. I don't know exactly what it is. It doesn't look like grenades, but it looks like... I don't know, little bombs or something. <laughs> like a silver version of like the bullet creatures from Super Mario. <laughs> That's funny. I don't know what it is, but I, I guess it is kind of like a some kind of a grenade. Some some explosive. Yeah, it's an, expl- it's an explosive because that's what causes like the, the big kind of blow up of the guy's body. Yeah, and it's, yeah, it, it, and it is like the thing... And, you know, then T-1000 eventually falls in after, you know, Arnie steps in with that last shot. And he does all those transformations, and then he finally kind of melts into the molten steel or whatever it is. But it's, you know, it's such a good sequence because the whole thing is this guy's indestructible, you know? It's not like the T-800, which is what Arnold is here, where he's 
the exoskeleton covered by like this genetically more like skin material it's more you know that's like a skeleton with skin on top which is still really strong but it still has joints and different things so it seems more able to be destroyed with t-1000 like they've done everything to this thing they froze it that's a sequence that's amazing i love it cracked it into like a million pieces it still is able to melt and come back together so it's just like they've done so many things and it just keeps coming back like relentless and they finally are able to get rid of it by you know melting it so it's i don't know it's just such an amazing thing i the you know it's awesome that you got to see this in the theater i did not live close to a theater and i really didn't start going to the movies that much until i was old enough to drive myself so i don't believe i saw this at the theater my introduction to this movie was through the guns and roses video you could be mine as i discussed probably many times on the show I was a massive Guns N' Roses fan, um, especially at this time, like 13 to 16. Um, and I was 13 when this movie came out. How many times did you see Guns N' Roses live? Uh, oh my gosh, like counting the last few times we saw them. Oh, you can count total, but I'm also curious about in that teenage range. Uh, I saw them twice. I saw them like the day after my 14th birthday, which was in 1992. And then I saw them with Metallica and Faith No More. That was a big show. <clears throat> it was. And then, yeah, that was it. Because then they kind of broke up. Um, well, the original-ish team. Right. For me, the core is like Axl Rose, Slash, and Duff. And other people kind of rotate and revolve around that. But if those are the key people I consider to be Guns N' Roses. You know, just my opinion. But um, they kind of split off after that. So I didn't see them again. And then you and I have been twice. Yes. So when, since they've gotten back together. Because you had never seen them when you were younger. No. And I always wanted to. Yeah. And I had friends that went to that big, you know, Metallica, Faith No More, GNR show. And I was like, oh. <laughs> and like those same friends saw like Pink Floyd, the Division Bell. And I was like, oh. Well, I mean, I don't think... I, the first show that I saw in, in, I believe, Biloxi, Mississippi, was the one when I just turned 14. And that show was totally killer. It was great. Soundgarden opened for them. Oh. Wow. <laughs> um, so it was amazing. Um, the one that I saw with Metallica was in New Orleans. And it was a good show also, but the guy from Metallica had been injured. Um, James Hetfield had been burned by, like, some pyrotechnic effect on stage. I remember this. So he wasn't able to play guitar. And it, I do think that that detracted a little bit from Metallica. Mm -hmm. Because, not that the guy that they had probably standing in or whatever wasn't good. He was. But, like, James Hetfield is not, like, a, you know, dancing around the stage front man. Like Axl Rose, for example. Mm-hmm. He's, you know, so I felt like he he seemed uncomfortable just kind of standing behind the microphone singing without having the guitar. They still sounded good, but, uh, you know, I was mostly there for Guns N' Roses anyway, and it was a good show. No complaints there. Every time I've seen Guns N' Roses, they've been good. Um, 
even, you know, the more recent ones included. So, yeah, but I've seen them. I, I hadn't seen them at this point. Um, I was really into Appetite for Destruction album. I thought it was awesome. I Who was not, wasn't into that? I mean, I wasn't wrong. It is awesome. It's like one of the best albums of all time. Yeah. Like, pretty much no, not even a bad note on that thing. That's a desert island kind of thing. You <laughs> it know? is. I would bring that to the desert island. You yeah. would be smart and you would never regret it. I mean, no. it's amazing. And so, of course, I'd listen to that on New Lies and Use Your Illusion, uh, the, t- the double album was about to come out that year. And You Could Be Mine, which is in this movie, was the first single, um, which I believe you looked it up and it came out in June. Yeah, I think it came out towards the end of June, maybe about two weeks, you know, before the, the movie came out. And then I remember you saying that the video came out in July. We don't know when. We don't, but I think it must have been just around the time. Well, I hope that it was around the time that the movie was coming out. Yeah. Because the video has so many clips from the movie in it. And, you know, it's not like it totally gives it away. I guess they were using footage from the teaser trailer. But they're, like, most of the really kick-ass stuff from the movie is in this video. And so I kind of treat this video as kind of like a Cliff's Notes version of Terminator 2. <laughs> it shows you, like, all the totally awesome stuff. However, it has, like, a different premise than the movie, which I really didn't think about that much until yesterday. We watched the video again, and I'm watching this premise, and the premise is, you know, it's like, in 1984... They sent back the Terminator to kill Sarah Connor. It's back, but now it has a different mission or a different target. Guns and Roses. And so I'm like, all right, so am I now to assume that, like, Guns and Roses plays, like, an integral part in the future war of man versus machine? Like, they had to, like, send this Terminator back to, like, take them out because they were really going to, like you know, start Skynet. I don't know. What I do love is, like, the end of the video, after, like, first of all, the Terminator has walked through this crowd at the show with a sawed-off shotgun on his shoulder, and nobody's blinks an eyelash. I mean, I guess that's America for you, but whatever. (laughs) Like, and then at at the end of the video, like, after the singing part is over, we go outside, and Guns N' Roses is, like, leaving the venue, and Arnold Schwarzenegger as the Terminator standing out there, again, with a sawed-off shotgun on his shoulder, which Slash thinks is hilarious, apparently. I mean, that's just funny stuff. Again, right? you just walk out, there's like a dude, like a huge dude, completely wearing leather with a sawed-off shotgun, and you're just like, heh, look at this guy. Slash looks tank. <laughs> I mean, tanks. that was kind of his whole thing, I guess, but... Oh, yeah. It was really funny to me. It's <laughs> hilarious. And he kind of does this... Re- you know, the Terminator does this reticle across each of their eyes and identifies each of the members of the band. And then Axl Rose comes out at the end. And they kind of, like, do a stare down. And then the Terminator's, like, um, computer, like, pops up and says, Waste of ammo. <laughs> so I guess, like... As it turns out, Guns N' Roses isn't a huge part of, you know, Skynet and the sentient machines. But, you know, I don't know. Maybe this song, like, rocked so hard that machines became sentient. Maybe that was what was happening. These robots came to life and were like, this song slaps. It's 
kind of like wild stallions, right? <laughs> you know, it's that wild stallions connection that we have here. Oh, and that's uh, wonderful. I can feel it. And I mean, it's also well known that Slash is a master computer hacker. <laughs> of course. You know, Duff McKagan, proficient in coding. He I mean, might be, actually. I mean, we don't know. He's a really smart guy. Okay. So maybe he is. I have no idea. He could be. I mean, I wouldn't be He's able to do anything. He's a brilliant writer and like a finance genius. And he, you know, maybe he's gone to school and become a master coding guy, too. <laughs> I have no idea. I wouldn't put it past him. That's all I'm saying. He's a renaissance man. He I is. get it. Yeah. No, I, I can respect that. I also want to bring up that this is not the first time we've seen Guns N' Roses like this. Now, Guns N' Roses showed up in the 1988 film, The Deadpool, the Dirty Harry film. Now, you know, The Deadpool was a movie, and, you know, this was a video. However, bringing Arnold Schwarzenegger into a music video, and then, you know, as you mentioned, the standoff between Axel, you know, and Arnie, where they kind of, like, have this terrible smirk to each other at the end like respecting each other's power i don't know (laughs) you know it's like that okay kind of makes it a movie for me so 1988 the deadpool dirty harry movie guns and roses is in the movie as a band they're on a boat slash shoots a harpoon of course he does i mean that's it he's a mariner you put slash on a boat with a harpoon what's he gonna do (laughs) you know that's how he uh (laughs) That's how he, he earned the nickname Captain Ahab Slash. <laughs> I heard that Slash, like on the off season, he's like a whaler. <laughs> that's, that's what I heard too. He's like Slash is like so deep into whaling. <laughs> like Moby Dick is his favorite book. I heard that. Yeah, he loves it. Moby Dick, he's like, this book's lit. Yeah, he's just like... Nothing I like better than sitting down with a giant bottle of booze and a copy of Moby Dick In the with end. my harpoon by my side. <laughs> I think he found peace and he like shares a bottle of booze with the whale, <laughs> you know, and they each like have some smokes. It's like they're friends now. Yeah, it's great. It's like the, the whale just comes up to the edge of the beach, pokes his head out, has the smoke. <laughs> Slash has like a big ashtray in front of the cigarette so the whale can just kind of, oh, you know, tilt his head and ash it. Since he doesn't have like opposable thumbs or whatever. Yeah, and then it's like a friendly thing. It's super cool. Then <laughs> Slash has people that just hold on to the whale's cigarette so it can go back in the water, mm. recharge, come back, get some more of that smoke, That's get fun. some more of that booze. I mean, they are buddies. <laughs> They're pals. That's it. Now, am I incorrect or not that the lead singer of the Deadpool band is Jim Carrey. Yes. That's awesome. He is singing Welcome to the Jungle, if well, I remember correctly. he's mouthing it. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's, yes. He's <laughs> mouthing it, and that it's a really wild movie because, you know, the Jim Carrey character is supposed to be, like, coming down off of these, you know, drugs. He's, like, doing a bad job with a music video shoot because he needs to go fix up. That's great. We you have know, to do Deadpool. It's, I mean, it's a, it's a wild movie. I mean, was it, you know, Jim Carrey's backing band, the Deadpool? I don't, I don't remember. I, I got to be honest, I don't remember. It makes sense I though, because they're doing so. the song. I'm pretty sure, but if not, it's all my fault. But <laughs> you know, that's what I remember because he, or, and I might just be making the connection because he was like lip syncing "Welcome to the Jungle." 
Yeah. And if I am I right in saying Liam Neeson was the director? Yes. Oh, yes. With a ponytail. Absolutely. Oh, wow. Classic film. We're coming back to do Deadpool. <laughs> we have to. Nothing. I don't going know to why us. that's comforting to me, but it is. I, I don't want to go too deep. I don't want to go too deep right now. But yeah, we'll, I, we we'll can, get back to we'll it. Get back we'll get back to it. We'll circle back. We'll come back around. But yes, I'm with you. The You Could Be Mine video really got me pumped up. Yeah. You know, Guns N' Roses was something that as a kid, we would get really jacked up on. You know, it was all these really young kids, you know, because when Terminator 2 came out, I was 14. Right. And when Appetite came out, I was younger than that. You know, Heck yeah, we were like, I don't know. I was like eight. Maybe you're probably like nine. So or maybe it was 88 and I was like 10. But either way, we're little kids. Oh, yeah. You know, and we probably shouldn't have been listening to that. I no. mean, I know my mom hated it that I was listening to it. Like the first time that she heard, like, it's so easy. Oh, man. She just about fell out. She was like, what are you listening to? And I was just like, you can't you can't take this away from me. Like I was really like angst ridden about it you know because i was like this is my tunes mom you know <laughs> i'm like this is what i love and she's just like oh because it was a lot of misogynistic like hardcore stuff being said yeah and i was like you know 12 so <laughs> i can understand why she was freaked out this is probably why i didn't have children so i couldn't deal with any kid that was like me so <laughs> yeah but we loved this stuff. It was like the coolest songs. Like so many songs on that are great. Welcome to Jungle, Paradise City, Sweet Child of Mine. Sweet Child, Rocket Queen. Rocket Queen. Night Train. Oh, Night Train is so good. It's Think About You. My I really Michelle like that. was a great song. Like I love so many songs off of that. I don't think there's one I don't like. And Slash is like the best guitarist. And Duff McKagan is like the best bass player. I know yep. he's not probably other people can argue but i think that that's like the first band where i actually listened to the bass and i started playing bass when i was like 14 because i was so into the bass from this from particularly from guns and roses well everyone will say appetite for destruction is one of the best rock albums of all time and as a unit the unit that was on there of guns and roses invincible yeah you could put them against anyone in their prime you know i honest to god i would put them up there with rolling stones in their prime these were loud nasty <laughs> you know wild musicians these people were completely you know off the chain with the things that they were saying yeah and it just got bolder and bolder as we went along and well yeah, yeah the lyrics of this oh. I mean, and I was I was telling John before we started the show, like a lot of the songs that are on Use Your Illusion, even though they came out in 91, a lot of the songs were actually from earlier. Um, if I'm not mistaken, there's a snippet of lyrics from You Could Be Mine printed on like the insert in the GNR Lies album. Um, and it's the part that is like... <laughs> With your bitch slap rapping and your cocaine tongue, you get nothing done. Of course, we're like, you know, 13 and 14 years old, just like belting this out. Yeah. Like it's the good stuff. And like it wasn't like bleeped or anything on MTV. So I was just watching this video like nonstop, listening to them say like all kinds of horrible stuff. 
but I just didn't care because I just love the song so much. I love the music. Yeah. There were songs that I liked the music. I didn't understand in any way what was being said. I honestly didn't understand for many years. And it, it's something where when I did begin to understand more of what was going on, there was really, you know, a fair portion of music towards the end that I just had to, like, step away from. Yeah, I, I kind of have that. I think with Guns N' Roses, I still am listening to it. I'm listening, though, too. Like... I'm not saying I'm not. I love them. But what I'm saying is it's like when I actually became aware. Because it's like when I'm a kid and I'm saying this stuff, like, what the fuck do There's I know? There's one you know? exception. What's that? One in a million. Oh, God. It's a great song, or I thought it was a great song, but there's just some stuff in it that I can't look past at this point in my life and, and culture, so I, I have to like not listen to that one really anymore. No, I can't But other than that, I, I still pretty much listen to everything they did and just, you know, I'm like, well, it is what it is, I guess. Yeah, I, isn't that in one of the songs, actually, on Lies, he actually says, take it for what it is? Yes, used to, used love, to her. love her. Yeah, yeah, well, I don't know. So Guns N' Roses, great rock band. The lyrics, we're not quite really on board all the time, but we like the tunes. It so. does, yeah, it's, it's, and this song, this song in particular is used in this movie as kind of like, the little anthem or something, I guess, for the John Connor character and his buddy. Right, that's the introduction. When yeah. we see Danny Cooksey and Edward Furlong, you know, like in the garage, you know, we've got this song blasting, and it instantly indicates to us that these two 10-year-olds are the king of badasses. 10-year-olds, <laughs> I yeah, mean. 10-year-olds. It's like I was 14 and I was like, oh, my God, I, I got to get on top of this badass thing. <laughs> yeah. I'm, like, way behind. Like, these guys are, like, going to ATMs. They're getting, like, 300 bucks. I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah, I they're, like, they have, like, a stealing, like, they have, like, a machine to, like, steal ATM pins. Yeah. I'm like, boy, they're advanced criminals at 10. They know exactly what to do. Like, I, I mean, John Connor knows when they're inside Cyberdyne how to get past you know, the key code he uses, the same ATM yeah. key card code machine. I actually thought that was cool that it came back because it's used at the beginning of the of the movie for him to pull out 300 bucks so he can go to the arcade with his friend. Later, it's used to, like, break into Cyberdyne. But, you know, these kids are, like, 10 years old. The whole thing with John Connor is that he's been he's been forced to grow up too soon, right? I mean, sure, sure. He's lived in foster care. His mother is in a mental institution. She had been spending, you know, all these years dragging him around to like all of these weird like guerrilla fighters and different things. Yeah. To learn about guns, learn about you know, pretty much criminal activities, so that they could live under the radar. And try to prepare for the impending doom that was coming. So this is a 10-year-old that's really been forced to go through one, like a lot of stuff that even like a 30-year-old probably shouldn't have had to deal with. Well, our generation growing up, we loved being the people that had it harder than anybody, you know? <laughs> I, I feel that like there, there was a lot of feeling at the time that you had to be 
um, like an independent parent. You know, we didn't yeah. have, a, you know, the ability to call home. You know, we were we were long gone and you would be in situations where you're completely by yourself, you know, and if you didn't have money, you didn't know where you were. It, it could get pretty rough. Yeah, you could have to figure it out yourself. And, you know, parents were maybe absent or working yeah. or whatever. Working but all you the were, time. But you were by yourself and you yeah. were going to have to figure it out yourself. Now, not as extreme as oh, John no. Connor. No, no. But at the same time, I think this is probably one of the reasons that T2 really resonates for you and me is because, you know, and probably people of our age is that we could really relate to John Connor. I mean, like, even though, obviously, he's going through it a lot harder than us. Right. He's this kid. And, you know, you can put yourself in that position of being that kid and having to, you know, have all of this responsibility on your shoulders when you're just a kid. Yeah, you know? because it's like, if you look at it without looking at, at the direct facts of the movie... You know, at the beginning of the film, John Connor thinks that his mother, Sarah Connor, is mentally ill, that she is not well at all. Yeah. And all of these doomsday prophecies are just pure madness. And he's been put in dangerous situations because of it. And then he ends up with these foster parents. And his, you know, relationship with his foster parents is adversarial. At best. At yeah. best. You know, I mean... I think that the parents are excellent. You know, Xander Berkeley as the stepdad. You know, he he's just like a guy that doesn't want to get off his butt. And he goes out to yell at John after the stepmother's like, you got to do something. And he comes out and he's like, you got to listen to your mother. And he has like a cigarette, like piece of junk. And then like, you know, the stepmother, you know, it just doesn't seem like a, a good relationship with her either. Like, it's yeah. just... It's I just mean, bad it's, news. It seems obligatory. Right. You know, like, yeah, they have this kid that they're fostering. They don't really seem to like him that much, and he doesn't like them that no. much. But they're just trying to, like, do what they got to do. Yeah. And, you know, they got this kid, you know, that's a foster kid who is really troubled. Sure. You know, so it's probably a little bit more than they bargained for, and they're not, you know, great at dealing with him. So he's just running off on a dirt bike, which, by the way, he lives in, like, L.A. Yeah. And he's riding a dirt bike all over the place, which I wouldn't do now as, like, an adult. But this kid is just, like, zipping all around town. And I thought that was crazy. Um, well, we also have that he is basically, you know, he has a single parent. You know, he gets back with Sarah Connor, and he really bonds with the Terminator as like a, a father figure. That's one of my favorite parts of this movie is that the relationship between the Terminator and John Connor grows so much. Mm -hmm. And yeah, this is a kid who's never had a dad. Um, and he comes to look at this machine in like a fatherly way over the course of the movie. And I really love that. I never would have thought that that could have happened. Like, you could have told me, okay, that's what this is about. And I would have probably scoffed a little bit. Yeah. Because, you know, it doesn't sound plausible, but it works. And it's because of the performances of Arnold Schwarzenegger and Edward Furlong that it, that it does work. 
Well, we also have Linda Hamilton, Sarah Connor saying, you know, this is the person that I would want for John. This is so much better than, you know, the other people that I've been with. And you can feel that she's coming around to this idea as well. And this is a person, you know, that this is this brings up abject terror. I mean, this is the person that chased her all over killed the man that she loves yeah you know it, it killed like everything and he was going to get her and now she's able to look at that face which with, is the same face yeah and with love i mean and then you also have this wish fulfillment because john connor is the one that sent back the terminator to young John Connor. So, and it's, it's so that like, there's so many layers to this and they're all connected. That's what makes Terminator such a special movie. And again, the thing is called a Terminator. Yeah. You know, it, I, I but just they don't reprogrammed know. it, right? I mean, like they reprogrammed it to, you know, save instead of terminate. <laughs> they, they tried. I mean, John Connor really had to, to work, uh, you know, pretty hands on with uh, Arnie to get him to stop killing people. It was just <laughs> yeah. very hard for him. You know, at the beginning of the movie, when Arnie gets, you know, his clothes from that one guy. Yeah. You know, it's the just biker guy. Yeah. It's like, give me your bike, your clothes, you know, and it's just like, what? And, you know, gets in this massive fight and like he throws the guy onto like a, a hot uh, stovetop. Yeah. The pain of that scene, man. Yes. Guy's all burnt up, you know, and then he, he's trying to pull out a gun to shoot, you know, Arnie. And then Arnie like takes the gun and gets the clothes. And you're just like, wow. I love the one guy who's like really going to make a stand and then he like rethinks it in just pieces smart man a yeah smart man. like good move guy <laughs> that's a very funny opening scene and one of the funny things that i read about was that they were trying to like bring down the budget of this because it started out at like 75 million or something then it went up to like 88 and then it kept going up and the studio was trying to figure out how they could cut, you know, different things to save some money. Yeah. So the studio guy was like, oh, let's cut this scene, you know, in the bar where he gets the clothes. And they were trying to get Arnold Schwarzenegger to convince James Cameron to cut it. And <laughs> Schwarzenegger was like, uh, we're not, we shouldn't cut this. That's exactly the kind of thing a studio guy would suggest. And he says that, like, to the studio guy, which Man. is great. This is why we love him, because... His ego is such <laughs> that, like, I think he feels like he can say whatever he wants. And he kind of can, because he's Arnold Schwarzenegger. And who else are they going to get? With the Terminator part, there is no one else. No, not possible. I mean, for that particular version of the Terminator, you can't you can't get anyone else. No, I mean, it just, I, I couldn't. Yeah, I, it would, it would freak me out like it, it's so hard like jason momoa is incredible i love him and when he was conan the movie was cool but i could not stop thinking about arnold schwarzenegger because arnold schwarzenegger to me is the live action conan yeah i mean he he's definitive mm -hmm. and as the terminator he's super definitive yeah and i have to say like as much as I thought he was great in the 1984 Terminator movie. I like him better in the Terminator 2 version of the T-800. 
because he's able to really, he's funny. Like he's able to convey so many different things with like this really deadpan kind of demeanor that he has. Sure. And it's just funny. Like when, when John Connor is trying to teach him how to be cool and talk normal, Mm -hmm. you know, and and not sound like a dork, you know. <laughs> it's just super funny. I love that scene. And I know that everybody else did too, because, you know, this is why people always were saying Hasta la Vista, baby, and stuff like this, because it was so funny in that scene. Well, and also, I mean, that's the line that he used when he shot the nitrogen frozen T-1000. Of course, it came back. Yeah, and that was like the moment when I saw that in the theater and when he shot the T-1000 and it shattered, I'm like, oh, that's it, you know? <laughs> and then it was like, oh, wait, we're in a very hot place and it's melting and coming together. Crazy. I mean, his acting, though, as a robot, I mean, it really is something that when I look back, I do really recognize how impressive it is, how he's like cocking, you know, that rifle when he's riding a motorcycle and he is not, you know, he's not changing anything. It's just like he's, he doesn't need the other hand. It's like, you know, cocking that rifle doesn't take any extra effort. Yeah. That's extremely hard. I'm a person that has very poor balance. You know, as I've mentioned, I can't even ride a bicycle without giving myself a compound fracture. (laughs) You know, this is a guy on a motorcycle, you know, and he's acting, right? He's looking tough, staying stoic. And then he's cocking this rifle, taking his hand off the handlebar to do it and not, you know, having any other physical movement, you know, and not looking at it really. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, yeah. oh, it's impressive. It was, and, and he stays like deadpan the whole time. And mm-hmm. like, that's not easy. No. I mean, we think about it, you know, on the surface, you think about it as maybe being easy because, oh, he just has to not make any faces. Do you know how hard that is? I mean, for me, it would be impossible because I'm pulling faces at all times. <laughs> you know, I literally got into acting initially because somebody was like, you make really a lot of funny faces. You should be an actor. And so I started doing plays and stuff in grad school because of that. I can't be, like, um, expressionless. So, like, the fact that he stays expressionless, like, even when he's saying hilarious stuff or doing something super tough like that, because I read that that was really difficult for him physically, actually, because when he was cocking that gun by flipping it, he couldn't wear a glove on his hand, and it just kept, like, ripping up his hand. Aye. When he was doing that, but he doesn't change expression. No, you don't see that it's causing pain. Like you never think about any of the things that are happening to him actually causing him pain, which in the context of the movie, they wouldn't. But as a human being who's doing this work, it would hurt a lot. Yeah. But it, it looks so good. And I feel like Schwarzenegger has a really great chemistry with Furlong the two of them really seem like they're talking to each other. They seem like they have a good relationship, which I guess in real life they did kind of get along. And it does, con- that is conveyed on the screen. It definitely seems like it. I mean, they were so close that at the end of the film, 
when, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger says, I have to kill myself because I have this chip in my brain. And if I don't die, then, you know, Skynet is going to happen. So it, it had to happen. Yeah. And it was, you know, we had John Connor saying, don't do it. Don't do it. I command you not to do it. It was horrible. It was so sad. Yeah. And he's like, he goes to, you know, uh, the Terminator goes to Sarah Connor. I can't self-terminate. Can you lower me down into this liquid fire so I, I can die? And earlier in the film, John Connor was crying and the Terminator asked about it. He wanted to understand yeah. what that felt like. And it was like, you know, John Connor was like, you know, it's a, it's a feeling of just, just pain. You know what I mean? And at the end of the film, Schwarzenegger comes over to John Connor and he goes, I know now why you cry, but it's something I can never do. So good. Oof. I mean, it, it also just shows you how far the Terminator has come, mm -hmm. that he can understand this human emotion as a machine you know he can he can feel it and i think that that's a theme that i really like throughout a lot of different media mm -hmm. i mean i think about star trek first i think about like data you know and how data and the next generation is an android but he is so interested in learning about feeling you know and he he's constantly chasing that to learn more about it and we have another situation here where you have the cyborg who can't feel, but he's kind of, he does have the capacity to learn new information, but over the course of learning that new information, he also kind of learns to feel as well. And that's so interesting to me. I love that. Well, the idea of robots becoming sentient, we have so many stories oh, yeah. that we've seen with that. And those are always interesting. Yeah. Because a robot is not something that can feel. And when you make that reality in your story, in your film, it's definitely something that brings you in. And this is what shows you just how good of an actor Arnold Schwarzenegger is. Because the first film, he's a robot. There's no question. No question. And, and it's just like, I am deadpan. That is it. He's a robot, like, killing machine. He That's is a it. Terminator. That is his purpose. That's what he does. Yep. And he doesn't stop. You fully believe that that metal exoskeleton, those glowing red eyes, is really all that he is. Yeah. And when you get to the second film, there's something comforting about seeing him. Uh, another point is that Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, was in the same shape that he was in for the first film. Whenever he played the Terminator, he wanted to be in the same physical shape so he could match it. That's really impressive. He, I mean, he's amazing. I know he did that for the first two films. I think actually the first three films. Um, so it's like you bring him in and then it's this slow change from deadpan to having emotion so it's not that he's ever being showy with it but he's sh he's steadily showing us that gradual growth you know of self yeah and they didn't shoot this in order that's amazing so it's something that he would have had to like kind of keep a handle on over you know from scene to scene by just remembering like okay where am i in my transformation during this you know, during this particular scene we're shooting today. Yeah. It, it, and it's at the end, it fully has you every time he, he burns up and melts at the end. I cry. I cried when we watched it just now. 
not going to stop. <laughs> Thinking about it makes me want to tear up, but you just see him go in there. Oh, and the last thing he gives you is that thumbs up. Yeah. Oh, oh so it's so hard. Man. Because, you know, you do end up believing that he's like a, a father figure to John Connor. Mm-hmm. You've been relating to John Connor the whole time, even though you're not quite as big of a badass <laughs> as him. You know, right? So we kind of see this Terminator as like a father figure. Absolutely, and it's perfect for the time because again, it was reflected in the music that we listened to. We're the generation that had Runaway Train, we had Nirvana, we had Pearl Jam. Yeah, we could go on and on. There's a million things that we're talking about the pain of of young people, and it it was something that we felt. You know, divorced parents, single parents, latchkey kids you know, working all the time. I, I mean, it was... It's part of who we are, yeah. like, as a generation. And somehow, this film manages to bring all of that together with a science fiction story, with a, with a robot that comes to life, <laughs> and a kid that, when he's older, sent back a robot to himself when he was younger to be his father and kind of, like, a husband to sarah i mean john connor uh, grown john connor is just in the business of sending himself dads (laughs) because in the first movie he sends kyle reese who's his literal bio dad can't imagine doing that that's so wild you know we have that and then in this one he sends back you know robot dad terminator 2 so that's just John Connor's future business. Yeah. So, I mean, it was a, it was an amazing performance from Arnold Schwarzenegger. I mean, this movie, you know, it was recognized with Oscars, you know, and, and, and some of them were uh, visual effects. I mean, why wouldn't they be? Because, I mean, that's it. I mean, we talked about it in great detail. Well, you talked about it in great detail. You did a lot of research on this. It was really amazing and enlightening. But... You know, what we saw was that this was kind of like a transitional film for visual effects because, you know, they took some of this new technology of CGI and practical effects and combined them Mm -hmm. and even did like what you're talking about in the abyss with like paintings, you know, painting frames and things like that. And if they hadn't been able to do that in this film, we wouldn't have had films like Jurassic Park. That came out a few years later. No, not at all. I mean, in this film, uh, there was a guy, John Knoll, who actually also worked on The Abyss. And he was with ILM. And he and his brother, Thomas, were the co-creators of Photoshop. And Photoshop was used in this to clean up these little glitches. Because when they would do this CG work... Um, there were problems. There, there were glitches because they said there was only so much space that they had, you know, on their computers, you know, kind of online what they what they had, you know. Yeah. I, I they I remember a figure of like it was some, in megabytes. Yeah, it was like nine hundred megabytes. They said they had available to render for the entire team. I mean, that's oh. unbelievable nowadays. Yeah, I mean. You can't even really buy, like, a flash drive that's that small anymore, you know? No. I mean, it's, there's no point, because everything else is, like, everything is so much bigger, you know, now, file size-wise and everything. But when I heard that, I was just like, what? Yeah. And it looked this good when they're, you know, they have this really primitive, relatively, kind of stuff. 
But yeah, that blew my mind that they were using, they created Photoshop and basically were using it to paint frames to fix the stuff. It's brilliant. Well, the people that are involved in Industrial Light and Magic, we should just do an episode where we literally just talk about it. I actually believe there might be a documentary on those folks. And I, I do oh, want to watch it. I would love to see that. I would too, because these are the people that made it all happen. And it's so creative. I mean, yes. and it's a different kind of creative. Like Stan Winston is also unbelievably creative. Oh, yeah. And what I love about him, which we saw, you know, in some of the, the featurettes in this movie, is that even though he's more of a practical effects guy, he's so open to the new frontier of digital effects and you know using them together just to get the best thing it's like he's not resistant at all even though it could mean you know that he becomes obsolete or his work becomes obsolete but his whole thing is art is art and art is always going to be needed you know and that's like this really smart point of view i think and i, I think that it just shows you that he's like the master of what he does, that he can embrace the future and not just be stuck, like redoing the same stuff over and over again. Yeah. He recognizes that the computer is a tool. And he said, you know, unless you have the skill, unless you're an artist, you're not able to use it. And Stan Winston said, you use whatever is at your disposal. Just like you said, I mean... The people at Industrial Light and Magic, Stan Winston, these people seem to want to do the best thing that they can do. They push it as far as they can every time, and then they push it even further. Yeah. And they said that James Cameron pushes them. You know, it gets he gets them to go that extra step. And the product, the end result that they get. It, it's amazing. I never mean, forget it. It's so cool to me because James Cameron has this vision, right? So, you know, he has this imagination and these ideas. Mm -hmm. And he's like, you know, I want to create something that, you know, looks like this. Like this liquid metal thing or like the pseudopod thing for the abyss. Right. And he kind of brings that to these people and they execute. And that's like such a perfect partnership, you know, to be able to have this person who has this vivid, creative imagination and then take it to these people who are able to like creatively apply that and make it happen. And it's just super awesome. And that that's what I, I think that's maybe one of the biggest things I love about this movie is that it can combine something, a story that's so emotional and characters that are so vivid and real. And then at the same time, bring in like this creative visual aspect that also feels so real that you kind of don't question it even one time. No. This feels very solid as a story. You're fully immersed. And the effects, amazing, both practical and computer-generated. I mean, to talk more about the practical effects, there was the use of twins Um, in the film. Yeah. Right? So there was Linda Hamilton and her sister, And then there was also the security guards. Yes. So it's like they would use what they had on hand to get the best product every time. Again, that's just so smart. Mm -hmm. 
And the fact that, like, Linda Hamilton just has a identical twin, and boy, did they look identical. Yeah. I mean, they had a different body shape in this, because Linda Hamilton was freaking jacked. And what a surprise that was, because yeah. when you came to Terminator 2, and then you saw that Sarah Connor was ready to take him on, that made it even more exciting. Yeah. Because we have a very, very strong protagonist in the first film and she talks about it she likes it very much but it's mostly her just running away you know there isn't as much of her just facing off with him and in this film she is a formidable opponent and it's it takes the combination of both her and you know the terminator to take out the t-1000 yeah you know because it's it's just so different you know it is and i we haven't talked enough about sarah connor so far so i'm glad this came up yeah because the transformation of her from the first movie to this movie is a huge part of the story um you know yes in the first movie again we are supposed to relate to her like as much as in terminator 2 john connor is our kind of every man that we're relating to it's sarah in the first movie she's this regular person who you know has this extraordinary thing happen to her yeah and she's just trying to kind of wrap her head around it and deal with it as best as she can when it's completely insane you know (laughs) and you know she's trying her best she's trying her best and by this movie she's gone through this experience which has really changed her as a person to the core of her being um not only has she like spent you know many years like taking john around trying to teach him how to use guns and how to do all these kind of things how to rob atms (laughs) exactly ride dirt bikes but she's also you know got tremendous ptsd horrible from this experience which who wouldn't okay Mm -hmm. And, you know, she is institutionalized for that. And her experience in the institution is no better, you know. She's in this institution with the same psychiatrist from the first movie. Yeah. Telling her that she's not right. Telling her that she's crazy. You know, telling her that she has to, like, let go of all this stuff. And and drugging her. And she's being abused by these horrible employees Ugh, there. Well, this so one disgusting. in particular. Yeah, real scumbag. You know, between the psychiatrist who's, like, emotionally abusing her and this guy who's, like, assaulting her. It's disgusting. I mean, her experience here is horrible. And the only thing that she can do is, like, to fight back is to try to prepare herself for this eventuality of Judgment Day that she knows is coming. Mm-hmm. By, you know, keeping her body in shape and doing all of these things. So she's super ripped in this. Like, doing pull-ups on her bed. Like, mm-hmm. that's, that's our introduction to her here. And it's such a different Sarah Connor than Sarah Connor from the first movie. And I think that's, like, one of the things that enriches the story so much. Is that we see her in this completely different way. I love it. I love the new vision and it's also in line with James Cameron. And the reason I say that is we see the evolution of Ellen Ripley. Oh, yeah. And we also, you know, then, of course, have the evolution of Sarah Connor. 
and it's from being, you know, your regular person, being traumatized, and then coming back stronger than ever. Yeah, because you know you still have to fight and you still have to persevere. Mm-hmm. I think it's brilliantly done. And the fact that, again, like you're mentioning she has a twin sister in real life and they were able to like use that to such a great effect mm-hmm. in, in several different ways. And then of course they have the security guard, as you mentioned in the hospital, who's getting the coffee. And then he turns around and sees the T-1000 who has transformed itself into an exact copy of him. And you know, that's such a smart choice. Just like, oh, how can we do this? Because if you did the whole thing in CGI, it would be possibly not that convincing in the end. It's convincing when it's all metal. But, you know, once, like, it forms, like, the image of the skin and everything, then it could have gotten real sloppy and hairy there. But just getting this person who has a twin, <laughs> perfect well, and I mean, if you want to talk about a, a computer-generated effect, the T-1000 is actually on that checkerboard floor. Oh, my God, and I love that Right, part. and he rises from the floor. Wow, that's a great shot. It, it's the best of both worlds. They talked about these shots being so difficult to achieve that they really had to pick and choose. And when they talked about the way that they shot these scenes... How they had to, like, that scene in the elevator. They actually shot, you know, these plates, and then they filled it in later. Oh, my God. Just so that they could, you know, get to work. You know, they would just build replicas of the set. The amount of work that went in and the work ethic on the entire team. Knockout. Not, yeah, unable to be matched. No, and I mean, they always pushed it further and further. And stunts. Let's talk stunts. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, again, yeah, that's one of the most amazing things in this movie that makes it like the ultimate action movie, the ultimate science fiction movie is like the chase scene, the Mm -hmm. chasing through the L.A. River, which you kind of, you know, you mentioned earlier. I just don't think I've ever seen a chase scene quite like that. I mean, they're just that truck like busting through the wall (laughs) and like going down into like the kind of culvert is amazing like i i just haven't seen anything like that and then you got the arnold schwarzenegger terminator on the motorcycle like shooting the, the gates open as he like drives through them i mean it's so cool and i was terrified when furlong is like riding that dirt bike and he's getting like bumped by the t-1000 driving that truck and it's the one time where the t-1000 kind of almost has a little bit of emotion because it's kind of like he's playing with his prey almost there Hmm. at least that's my sense no i i can i can feel that i can feel that because it's just like he could have run him over but it, it felt like he was taking his time with it so, it, yeah, it really ups the creep factor. 
And when he busted through, the T-1000 took that truck and busted through the wall of that bridge and came down into the L.A. River. I was there with my friends, and we were so excited by this action. We started laughing and clapping. We didn't know what to do. You know, it was such a suspenseful film that upped the ante so much in terms of the effects, in terms of the story, in terms of everything. You know, the movie was rated R, but everyone saw this. (laughs) You know, there's no one that was like, nah, I didn't see T2, skipped it. You know? Yeah, no, no. Whenever you had a chance to see it, you were going to see it. Yeah. I don't think I saw it until it was on, like, you know, pay cable or whatever, like HBO. But once I saw it, you know, my whole family was sitting there. Not just me, but, like, my little sisters, like, my parents, like, everybody. You know, we all saw this because, yeah, it was like a family event to see this movie. It's like an R-rated family action movie where they just murder the crap out of everyone, you know. Or just kneecap them if you're Arnold Schwarzenegger sees, you know, John told told him not to kill anyone. So instead he just maims everyone pretty bad. That's, look, that, that makes me <laughs> laugh, you know. I mean, like those two guys that come to john connor's aid because they think he's being hurt you know and then john connor is just a jerk to him yeah it's just like oh my god and then you know the terminator roughs up those guys and then just like it isn't enough just to rough them up he like pulls out a gun he's just gonna shoot them yeah it's just like it's so much of an escalation. You don't even know how to react. It feels so absurd. It's like a joke. It you is. Laugh. It's funny. I do laugh about that like every time because like John Connor's just being like this little smart ass, mm-hmm. like thinking he's being cool. And then he realizes like how high the stakes are. And it's just like, oh, crap, you know. And, you know, he makes he makes the Terminator promise not to kill anyone. But, you know, it takes a while for that to sink in. They show up at the mental hospital and they're trying to get in. And he just shoots the guy in both knees. And John Connor's like, hey, what are you doing? He's like, he'll live. (laughs) (laughs) He's just fine with it. I mean, the big events in this film are the matchups between the two Terminators. And, you know, our first Terminator face-off is in the mall alley. You know, I don't know what you want to call it, tunnel. It's like in the area behind the stores in the mall. Yeah, I guess like a back hallway or something. Yeah, that's, yeah, let's, a hallway, you know? So it's like we see, you know, Arnie, and he has this long box. Of roses. Right. And, you know, he's coming down the hallway, and then he just flips open the box. These roses come flying out at you. And he takes the rifle and he starts shooting the T-1000. That's like our first face-off. Yeah. And it's such an introduction. It's Be- down to business. It is down to business. It's a callback to Guns and Roses again. Of course. Everybody was jacked about that. I still am. When I see that, <laughs> I saw this gif of him just opening the box and throwing the roses. I could have watched it for an hour. I had You Could Be Mine on. That's great. I'm like, <laughs> you know what I mean? You were that, like all in. Yeah, those Matt Sorum drums at the beginning oh, really yeah. bring you right into the song. And then the bass kicks in the bass i love it (laughs) well there's something about it and i don't know why but there's something about the intro to you could be mine that actually makes me think about the mechanical sounds that you would hear when they were building one of these machines that's awesome and i totally buy that yeah like the 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 drumming in that is so hard and so driving Mm mm-hmm and I do imagine that, you know, that that happens in the video, like during that part of the song at the beginning, 
they're like showing like a Terminator being kind of built, um, like the the metal being hooked together and then like the skin put on and what I think you described to me as a cookie press. <laughs> That's what it felt like. They're making a really nice cookie. It is kind of like when you used those Play-Doh things to make shapes. Mm-hmm. That is what it looks like. You just They just put in the skin like Play-Doh and then just squish it on there and you're done. But that's where that, that kick-ass drum intro is happening over. And it feels like, like the sound effect for that. And then the bass comes in and it's just like, scream, awesome. Well, you have like so many yes moments in this film and that's what definitely puts it so high on the list for me it's just these moments of pure joy that really touch something you know it touches the kid you know from that time and you know now that i'm an old man i'm still having these same feelings yeah i mean you know attached to it it just energizes you because i can feel all the work that everyone who did who made this movie did mm-hmm. you know i can feel all the work that these visual effects people did i can feel all the vision that james cameron pumped into this from the script and the direction you know he really he really achieved something here and i think it's really impressive i mean it's not like this is the last thing he did he went on to make you know stacks and stacks of money that can never be paralleled in Titanic and uh, Avatar, and he's just going back to the printing press to make more cash sure. with the sequel to that. But something about Terminator 2, for me, I feel like it's one of his biggest achievements just because, at the time, this movie just did something with action that just had never been done before. And science fiction, really, too. Um, and I love it. I think it's really phenomenal. It's so great. The fights between the Terminators, all the interactions between the Terminators, when they actually have that phone call. Oh, my God. Between, so good. Right? It's like you think it's the foster mom, uh, who's actually played by Jeanette Goldstein, who is Vasquez in Aliens, another yes. James Cameron film. Um, you know, it's like the Terminator mimics John Connor's voice and talks to the T-1000, who was mimicking the foster mom's voice. Wow, that that's so spooky to me. That's <laughs> so is. spooky to me. It's creepy. And honestly, major props to Jeanette Goldstein because she is able to play the T-1000 pretending to be the foster mom right. in a completely different way than yep. she played the foster mom. And it's it's close enough that you have to say well i guess it's her but then it's there's like some kind of uncanny difference that makes you think something's off and then like of course you figure it out pretty quickly that hey this isn't really the foster mom like she's being a little too nice but it's not even that like it's it's even just like her movement and her way of speaking you know sure so i think she did a really brilliant job of of um, distinguishing the actual foster mom from T-1000 as foster mom. It's impressive. Yeah. And then when the camera pulls out and we <laughs> see that, you know, her left arm has turned into this massive knife 
which has gone through the mouth yeah. of, you know, Xander Berkeley, who plays the foster father. Yeah. Ooh, you know, yeah, I, mean, I mean, that's a very creepy scene yeah. because you just didn't expect that. You didn't expect that little piece you to be in there as well. It's very, very, very scary. There are a lot of horror elements in this. And they do a great job of wrapping the story in as well. Because when you see the two Terminators fighting and that ironworks at the end, and the T-800 loses one of his arms in the gears, you know, you don't think about it in the moment, right? Because you're like, okay, they killed the T-1000, the T-800 killed itself, they got rid of the stuff from Cyberdyne, we're good to go. But then you're like, oh, wait the arm that Cyberdyne had, they basically left a new one for them at the ironworks, so Skynet is still going to come back. Yeah. I like it that you can think about this movie and you can pick up on these details, and they do connect. It's very, very smart. And in the midst of all the action and being caught up and wanting the Connors to be okay, the T-800 to be okay, and the T-1000 to go away... You don't think about it in oh the moment. Oh, my God. And you know what we haven't talked about yet? Tell me. Joe Morton. Oh, the king. I love Joe Morton. I mean, God. we're. This just shows you how much there is in this movie that we haven't talked about Miles Dyson yet, right? So, Miles Dyson is this guy that works at Cyberdyne, and he's been tasked with kind of heading up this team that's doing research and development related to this chip and this kind of metal robot arm that they found after the first film. So what the the 1984 Terminator left behind. And also, I do want to mention these items Sarah Connor said were there, but everyone told her they were not there. Yes. But they were there the entire time at Cyberdyne while she was being abused in a mental institution. And gaslit and being try people trying to convince her that she didn't know what she knew. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this whole time <laughs> they've been doing research and developing things based around this technology. Mm -hmm. And the whole thing and the kind of the tragedy of this character, Miles Dyson, is that he's not a bad guy. He's a like, great guy. He's a really good person. He's a really smart person. He wants to use this technology to make the world a better place. But unfortunately, that's not what is going to happen in the timeline of the beginning of this film. What's going to happen is that his research is going to end up leading to, to you know, sentient machines who blow up people, you know, and want to kill people. So, you know, they have to confront him with this knowledge which is done in a very violent way. Yes. I mean, Sarah Connor is going to go assassinate this dude and then just kind of can't bring herself to do it. It's in front of his wife and young child. Yeah. And they're such a wonderful family. It's such a good family. You can tell it's just a wonderful place. Yeah. And then you have someone trying to kill the father who is and and it's your one of your protagonists mm -hmm. who's doing it so like you're on her side but you're also like wait you know because of the way that she's going about this but you know sarah connor has been convinced through the abuse that she's experienced 
that there is no way for her to deal with this except with violence. Yeah. She's tried reason. Reason got her nowhere. And now she thinks this is the only thing she can do. But then when, you know, the rubber meets the road, she can't actually kill this guy. She's injured him. But they manage to go through, well, John and, and the Terminator show up as well. And between the three of them, they're able to convince him that he needs to destroy this research and these parts that he's been researching. And he goes along with it, even though that's, like, tragic for him. Yes, it's destroying everything that he's been working on. This is not um, a very simple thing. Cyberdyne is a very big company going in, destroying these prized possessions, these top secret items, destroying everything that he has. And, you know, Miles Dyson has been shot, you know, in his home. Okay, his wife is Esapatha Merkerson, who is incredible. Love her. She's awesome on Law and Order. But on this, we see like a different side of her, where yes. she's like this wife and, and mother. And she's, you know, under attack in their own home. And it's so scary, you know. But the two of them, you know, end up listening to John, Sarah, and the Terminator. And they understand you know that something needs to be done to stop this from happening and they're able to convince miles and i'm surprised because it seems like a really tall order but you know we have this really cool scene where like schwarzenegger cuts his skin off of his arm and just shows his little you know metal luke skywalker arm yeah 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 and and it looks identical to the arm that, that Cyberdyne has to research. So he has to, you know, Miles has to realize, you know, yeah, this is true. This is real. But it made me sad this time when I was watching it because he's talking about, you know, all that they've learned and all the things that they were going to be able to do with that information. And, you know, it's sad because this is this really idealistic person who thought that all of the work he was going to be doing could be used for good Mm -hmm. and he finds out that it's all for naught it's terrible it's a tragic tragic character there isn't much screen time in the final cut the person that plays the the child you know is excellent as well uh there was actually an additional scene uh that we saw that was cut that was just the family having a good day yeah and you know it was cut for time but part of me also thinks that that was cut because we would have been much too sympathetic to this family it's just a great family they are they're a great family and eventually we lose miles like he's killed during this final massive showdown with the police at cyberdyne and it's already really hard but it would have been even harder And one of the funny things that you pointed out about Joe Morton is that he played the father of Cyborg. Yeah. In the um, DC movie series. And, you know, so we have this same actor who's like heavily involved in R&D around like Terminator type creatures in two different movies. I think that was so funny. I didn't put it together, but you were like instantly 
thought about that. I thought that was hilarious. Yeah, I think it was something to do with the red eye and then Joe Morton, because Joe <laughs> Morton is just such a, a fantastic actor. And in the death scene of Miles Dyson, when he's at Cyberdyne, he's actually holding up this, you know, device that if he drops it, it's going to ignite all of these explosives. It's going to take out basically the whole building. And then the SWAT team comes in and, you know, they're, they're going to take him out. And the SWAT team is actually headed by Dean Norris, um, you know, Hank from Breaking Bad, you know, which is crazy because by his voice, you know, I was like, oh, that's Dean Norris. And it was Dean Norris. And this is not the first Arnold Schwarzenegger movie that he's been in. He also was in Total Recall. He was at the last resort. He played Tony, the guy that looked like he had some pancakes flipped over on his head. <laughs> Those are some unappetizing pancakes. But yes, I know what you mean. Uh, yeah, they only have this Dean Norris in these movies with a completely unrecognizable covered face. Yeah. <laughs> because in this, he has, like, this mask on. But I saw, like, his eye, and I was like, is that Hank from Breaking Bad? And we looked it up, and it was. And, yeah, it's so funny because the guy's a super strong actor, mm -hmm. but people just kept putting stuff over his face. Yeah, like, I, that's so weird. And it's awesome that we recognized him, you know, like... If that was me out there or you out there, you know, I'd be so happy that people I'm, are like, I know who you are. I'm happy for him that we recognize him as well. So. I see you, Dean Norris. <laughs> yeah, and we're really we glad you. that you finally got to show your face on camera eventually <laughs> in a great part in Breaking Bad. So, right. way to go, dude. Dude. But yeah, the that scene at Cyberdyne is crazy. And then we have uh, all this helicopter stuff happening. Mm, yeah. So, it starts in that scene. Um, with, you know, the T-1000 jumping out the window and, you know, breaking the window of the helicopter and jumping in. Yeah. And, or going in, like, in that liquid form, which is freaking awesome. It's crazy. And then the pilot, like, jumps out. <laughs> He's like, out, I'm out of here. <laughs> no, he can't deal with it. I mean, it's... And that was yeah. the real pilot, right? So that was a real helicopter pilot? Yeah, this guy, Chuck Tamburo who was a Vietnam vet, you know, and he was a pilot. He has a gajillion credits. You know, he worked on Predator, just to name one of a billion. That we've already talked about because we're like Predator focused. Right, so we're like, good. we know. <laughs> and so what happens is that helicopter goes under the bridge when it's in pursuit of Sarah Connor, John Connor. And when it goes under that bridge, that's extremely dangerous. Because you could die from that. You know, if, if you were just like half an inch off, I, I think, you know, it, it's very slight. Um, before the stunt was done, Chuck Tamburo made sure that it actually physically was possible for the helicopter to go under there. And James Cameron said, yeah, we could have done it with CGI, but that's for cowards. <laughs> um, the crew, the camera crew refused to shoot the sequence. So James Cameron actually shot that himself uh he had like an insert driver the sequence was done twice because they needed two angles on it oh my it. god and so it, it it's this death defying sequence because there's just really no margin for error in this piloting and it's it's so impressive and it shows you how precise the t-1000 is because that is the biggest thing he is impeccable 
His look is always the same. He's always clean cut. He's got his hair together. He's got himself together. Everything is precise. Mm -hmm. And this is right in line with that. Well, and using like the cop look gets him in so many places. Sure does. So like the fact that like, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger's Terminator goes and like dresses up like a biker, Mm -hmm. which honestly closes a lot of doors, I'm guessing. (laughs) But uh the robert patrick t1000 disguises himself as a police officer which allows him to get into a lot of places without being questioned Mm -hmm. and you know he gets into the mental hospital just waves them on through you know nobody has any problem with that the foster i'm sorry the foster parents actually tell him where john connor is give them a photo of him yeah because he is a cop please continue yeah, I mean, it's, I don't know if that was intentional, that the T-1000, you know, was programmed with that kind of knowledge, but I think that it must have been the intent, you know, that he knew because he gets into the cop car and in, and immediately is able to, like, look up John Connor on yeah. the police record and find out the address and go there, you know. So it's it's really brilliant storytelling to have that be the form that this T one thousand takes as his as a general rule. Obviously he takes different forms throughout the whole thing, but he keeps going back to that cop form. At the very end when he's in the ironworks and he goes through all of the different faces that we've seen him with in the film, when he's melting at the very end I find that to be one of the most terrifying moments in the film. And I know that we've seen him transform, but there's just something so desperate and terrifying. Like, it shows you that this creature is so driven that it will do absolutely anything. Yeah. Anything, anything to make it. It's at fighting. All costs. Yeah, it's fighting back so hard. Yeah. You know, even though it's imminently being destroyed, you know, it's going to melt, it's going to die, but it just keeps fighting back. And it it's just like what you're saying, it, it has this persistence that is non-human. You know, it, it keeps going and going. It's like an Energizer bunny, yeah. but a T-1000. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I think we've covered the many many points that we wanted to make about this movie it's tough because there's just so much to say about it and we love it so much but this was really fun i hope you had fun talking to talking to me about this movie absolutely love talking about this movie it brought back so many memories yeah and you're just able to relive all these amazing highs from this film yeah. You know, I feel like I'm 14 again and back at the movie theater. <laughs> well, it was really something that I felt I had never seen before at the time. And it is fun to, like, recapture that feeling every time you watch it. And I do think that you pick up new things every time you watch this, too. Like, about the story, you know, or new things every time you rewatch the Guns N' Roses You Could Be Mine video. <laughs> and you realize how important they were, you know, to, to, to Cyberdyne and Skynet. I mean, I've been sketching too many times. Why don't you give it a rest? That's it. I will. You know? All right. Good for you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, everyone, for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you haven't heard enough of our beautiful melodic voices this week, 
Um, why don't you head on over? And honestly, even if you have heard too much of it, do it anyway. Head on over to Film vs. Film Podcast. Um, we were able to have an awesome talk with Martin and Boaz from Film vs. Film about Stephen King adaptations, where we did a little face-off between The Shining and The Mist. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just such a great experience. So much fun um, to talk about these non-comfort type films right i never knew how much i wanted to feel bad you know (laughs) until we did it but we love stephen king you know we love the shining mist is amazing it's just like we had we had a really great time and martin and boaz are just really fun and they're really smart smart. super fun guys and we can't recommend enough that you go and listen to our episode or listen to any other episode that they've done um it's definitely worth it and thanks to those guys for inviting us. Thanks we so can't much. wait to have you uh, come and do our show or us come join you again. It was just a great time. Um, next week, we're going to be continuing with the straight to sequel September series. Yeah. <laughs> with our discussion of The Empire Strikes Back. What a movie. Which has to be one of the best sequels ever made. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of our favorite movies ever made as well i kept seeing it on tv the past couple of weeks late at night and i just watched it the whole way through. <laughs> you just every can't time. you can't stop you have to do that that's the same thing with terminator 2 i can pick up this movie at any point and just i have to keep watching it same thing with empire so this is what we're talking about in straight to sequel september mm-hmm. so come back next weekend and join us for empire strikes back thanks for joining us for terminator 2 And we'll talk to you next time. Stay comfy. Stay comfy.